Welcome to Clarity on Real Assets, a podcast series of Kempen in where we dive deeper into the investment category real assets. Inflation, energy security, climate change, current themes that have investors worried. What are the asset classes that provide protection against those risks? And what are the type of investments that actually contribute to a more sustainable society? These are the kind of topics we will discuss today in relation to investing in real assets. The guests we have for you today are Egbert Nijmeijer, co-head real assets at Valanschot Kempen, and Jack Swalia, senior portfolio manager, global licit infrastructure at Valanschot Kempen. Welcome both. Thanks for having us. Egbert, first to you. Can you explain to us what are real assets? Yeah, real assets are, are investments in, in items that are uh, every day around us. So think of it like um, office buildings for real estate, um, toll roads for infrastructure, but also agricultural land, for example. So it's, uh, it's items uh, that are real and that are every day around us. Um, it's also an investment asset class that doesn't belong to the regular asset classes like equities and bonds. So in that sense, it's also uh, what people call alternative investments. Um, and because of that, it has a low correlation with equities and bonds. It's very decorrelated and also makes it an interesting diversifier for a lot of investment portfolios. So that's the third um, type. The fourth type is that it generates cash flows independent of economic developments quite often. So real estate, for example, has uh, leases underneath it that will create very predictable long-term cash flows. For infrastructure, it is concessions from governments that will create those predictable cash flows. And agricultural land, of course, uh, you can harvest from it and, and that will predict create predictable cash flows as well. So those are kind of the four elements of real asset investing. Jack, do you have something to add? Yeah, just so for infrastructure, which is you know the area that I specialize in, it's you know it's the old and the new. So the old infrastructure, we're really thinking about you know things which were kind of built to last a hundred years. So I'm thinking you know airports, toll roads, the ports that we have, and in terms of the new, that would be the more digital plus renewables. You know, and to be honest, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably using a couple of pieces of infrastructure already today. So you know, like. It's going to be stored somewhere, so there's a data center. You know, if you're on your device, that's going to be charged somewhere, so that's electricity coming from the other end of the socket. So that's pretty much, you know, the infrastructure we have. So real assets is sort of a collective name for different types mm -hmm. of investments. Could you give us an update on the developments within uh, real estate or infrastructure? Sure. Within real estate, uh, one of the key developments, I think, over the last uh, decade or two decades or so has been that the um, the investment opportunities has broadened significantly. So 20 years ago, when you thought about real estate, it was about offices, apartments and, and retail shopping centers mostly. But the investable universe in the last 10 years has significantly broadened. So these days we can choose from storage boxes, for example, lab space for life science industry, uh, urban warehousing for city logistics, or land decoupled from the buildings above. So there are a, a multitude of investment opportunities out there today that has, uh, well, at least uh, uh, made our daily uh, work a lot more interesting. And on the infrastructure side, three big themes. So the first one, if I go with the longest term one first, and then I'll go to the shortest term. So the longest term theme that's really quite powerful is the energy transition. And now with the geopolitics, that's actually turning into energy security as well. Uh, secondly, it's inflation protection. And really, 
For the past one year, that's the question that we get most often from our clients and our prospects, inflation protection. And then lastly, which is most near term, it's just basically the economy reopening after COVID. And we also see that impacting infrastructure also in a positive way. Well, thank you both. That makes it a lot more tangible. Um, Do you think that real assets play, like some experts say, really an essential role in the whole energy transition? And you mentioned it just now, Jax. But can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So basically, if we're serious about reaching the goals of the Paris Agreement, so that was from 2015, which basically means we need to halve our CO2 emissions in the coming eight years by 2030. If we need to do that, You've got to start with the power sector because 30% of global CO2 emissions come from the power sector. And so basically, if we're going to get the energy transition done, we're going to have to get it done here. It will have to happen within the infrastructure space, which is where a lot of those power assets sit. And so if we think about our energy system, it took 130 years to get to where we are today, where it's basically 20% renewables, 80% fossil fuels. In the coming 28 years by 2050, we've got to reverse that mix completely onto its head, which means a massive investment opportunity for the infrastructure sector. Mm. So if you think about the utilities companies we have, they're basically trying to do the same thing, which is move away from coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel, and towards renewables. And that is, in a sense, essence, the energy transition. But when those companies do that, obviously, they're not all going to be able to do it at the same speed. And, you know, that's bad news because we would need, you know, everyone to move as fast as they can. But as an active stock picker, you know, that's great for us because I get to now have a difference in which company does move faster versus which that doesn't. And, you know, that's what we look for in the energy transition. And how is that in the real estate sector, Egbert? Yeah, like Jack said, eh, in infrastructure, real estate is a, um, a large greenhouse gas emitter as well. So um, a tremendous opportunity to change something. Um, the good news is, I think, from my side, that from the 300 approximately real estate funds that we analyze, um, most of them have a, a plan in place right now to reach the Paris Agreement. So either to decarbonize 50% by 2030 or 100 and or 100% by 2050. So we do see a lot of willingness of, of the management teams. Um, I think the... The risk or, or the bad news, if you will, is that these plans are not concrete enough yet. Mm. So quite often we see that financial funding is not sufficiently available or management teams are not financially aligned to reach those targets. So there's room for improvement. And um, with our team, with the real assets team, every day we engage with these management teams to try and improve their plans and to make sure that the planet reaches the Paris goal in time. Mm. So by investing in real assets, you can actually also contribute to a more sustainable society, I would oh, say. Yeah, definitely. You know, and as Egbert said, if we see a company that's lagging, not doing as much as we think it could within its degrees of freedom, that's a great opportunity for us to engage, to you know, bring that new active into our process. So. And could you elaborate on the impact on real assets um, from the war in Ukraine on energy, uh, one of the largest yeah. uh, as, uh, investment uh, categories within infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Jax, yeah. could you elaborate yeah. on that? So just for context, you know, with the situation, the geopolitics at the moment, at least from the European perspective, we're getting about 30% of our gas from Russia and about 25% of our oil from Russia as well. So it's a significant geopolitical issue that we have in terms of the energy markets. And what's happened within infrastructure, for years, the dominant theme was the energy transition. You know, that's the big challenge that the planet has. 
since the geopolitics has really, you know, yeah, deteriorated, energy transition, we're starting to recognize how much it overlaps with energy security. And so by energy security, what we basically mean is one of two things. Either I'll generate the energy myself, so that would really be renewables, which, you know, most people can basically get, you know, wind or solar in their country. Or the second part of energy security is if I can't generate the energy myself, I've got to be able to get it, import it from a friendly partner for the long term. And so, you know, we have been importing oil and gas from Russia. Since the crisis, you know, the US has stepped up to basically say, okay, we can start shipping gas to you. That's called LNG and, you know, liquefied natural gas. And so for the infrastructure space, actually, the energy security theme has just reinforced the energy transition theme and really been a tailwind for the sector. So that's actually, you know, really helped, you know, the performance of the infrastructure names that we look at, just because now the market really thinks, okay, energy security, that's also happening here. And that's much more important than it has been historically. And Egbert, what is your view on that? Um, I think for infrastructure, the, the, the impact is very direct. For, for real estate, it might be a little bit more indirect, but certainly uh, very large as well. So coming out of the global pandemic, the real estate industry was already facing a lot of supply chain disruptions. And for building material, for example, um, that creates um, disruptions, but also cost inflation. So when you want to build a new building, uh, costs will go up, uh, which makes profitability of building a new building um, um, decrease. Um, the final element, I think, with, with rising inflation is that interest rates, interest rates also go up. And, and real estate and infrastructure are capital-intensive industries. So that, that interest rate environment that is, that is going up is, uh, is, is less mm-hmm. beneficial for, for, for real assets. So those are the main uh, impacts from, uh, from the global pandemic, but also the, uh, the Ukraine-Russian war. So the focus has shifted a bit more uh, from energy transition towards energy security. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit uh, more about inflation. Inflation is really a topic that our investors are worried about. How can real assets sort of protect investors against inflation? Um, yeah, um, I think if inflation rises, um, it's very key that the, the yield of your real estate investment rises along with it. Hey? People invest in real estate because of inflation protection. Um, the key element there is that your real return is um, guarded against rising inflation. Huh? There's a difference between nominal return and real return. The real return is after subtracting the impact of inflation. Um, so you invest in real estate and real assets because you, you're after uh, positive real returns. And although that is very often the case with real estate, there can be examples where that is not the case. Let me give you a couple of, uh, of, of examples of that. Um, If you don't have enough pricing power over your tenants, you won't be able to push your rents as high as inflation growth um, will have happened, right? So, for example, with office buildings, we see that newer office buildings that are energy efficient, they have a lot of pricing power these days with tenants. There you can push rents along with inflation. But if you have an older office building, Um, the demand is lower, there's less pricing power, and you will end up with negative real returns. The other example is apartments, for example. So a lot of people uh, invest in apartments these days, uh, pension funds, but also several of our private clients. If you invest in apartments, uh, but there is a regulator that says your rent cannot be 
pushed higher than a certain cap, then you have a problem. Because if your cap, for example, is 3% rent growth per year, and your starting return is 3%, but your inflation is already at 7 8%, yeah, then you have a mismatch. Your, your real return will be minus 2%. Um, that is quite often the case here in Europe. So we've got regulatory environments in the Netherlands. We've got regulatory environments in Germany. So if you invested in those areas with apartments, you really run the risk of negative real rates. rates. That's not the case in the US, for example. There's less regulation there. Rents can be pushed higher. And there you see a very good uh, hedge against rising inflation. So you have to be very careful where you invest, whether or not real estate will offer you that inflation hedging. Well, thanks, Egbert. And who, how is that in the infrastructure sector? Yeah. No, that's excellent. I like that explanation. There's so much read across to, on the infrastructure side. There's a lot of similarities on inflation protection. So, you know, as we see when inflation's rising, that's what you want, inflation protection. And the two pathways towards getting that, you know, that pricing power to push through your costs to your customers. It's either going to be from your monopolistic position where, you know, when you sign the contracts with your customers, you can put a clause in there that says... You know, I'm going to be passing on inflation and every single year we're going to review what the inflation rate is and that will get passed on to you. And then, you know, secondly, it's from regulation where, you know, basically the state regulator will say in order for you to provide this service, i.e., you know, power generation, electricity to customers and to make it worth your while for the coming, you know, 50 years, we are going to make sure when inflation rises, you're able to pass that through to your customers. So it's either regulation or your, you know, your position in that value chain. And what we found, we did a back test on this to see, you know, that was the theory, but how good does it work in real life? And in the last 15 years, when our, you know, infrastructure sector has been roughly similar in terms of which companies are there. In the last 15 years, when inflation was above 2.5%, the infrastructure sector outperformed global equities by about 3.5%. So we're really happy to see that in the last 15 years. And the good news is, right now, this is 2022, that relationship still holds. You know, we've got inflation that's way above 2.5%, and the infrastructure sector, you know, strongly outperforms global equities. So we're happy that relationship's held, and our justification is it's basically because inflation protection is much more valuable now. But like Egbert said, you need to be careful which companies are choosing because they're not all going to have inflation protection designed the exact same way. So you've got to be bottom up. You've got to be active. And apart from this inflation uh, protection, what mm -hmm. are other benefits of investing in real assets? It has um, very forecastable returns, as we always call it. So returns, the visibility on your returns is quite good. Tenants are paying rents quite often. Um, those tenants are usually very creditworthy. So your returns are forecastable. The second benefit, I think, is that the investment value is quite robust. So over the last two major crises uh, in the global economy, so the great financial crisis back in 2007 um, and the global pandemic, um, real assets has really proven its worth. Uh, values have been relatively stable over a long holding period. And um, yeah, it, it, in that sense, it's a very safe investment. And then finally, it's, as we said in the beginning, it's a tangled asset. So you can also always fall back on it. It, it won't disappear, right? The building is always there. Um, the cash flows are secure. So as, a, as we said in the beginning, as a diversification versus equities and bonds, this is a very interesting asset class. Jax, anything to add? Yeah. So on that diversification point for infrastructure, 
it's not a very homogenous asset class. It's actually very heterogeneous. So we basically have, you know, things like toll roads, ports, airports that I mentioned, to data centers, to, you know, LNG terminals, to, you know, wind farms. So for us, having that, you know, diversification in the fund or in the asset class just means there's always different sources of alpha. You know, so there's always something that should be working at any given moment. So, you know, whether it's the energy transition, whether it's airports benefiting from like the reopening trade, you know, there's always something that kind of, you know, drives that asset class forward. So we like that. Secondly, it'll be liquidity. So, you know, listed infrastructure where we specialize, you know, you can get in every single day of the week if you wanted to and stuff. So, you know, you're not waiting, you're not in a queue waiting to kind of, you know, invest into the sector. So we really like that. We've already talked about inflation protection. But then lastly, it's just the three mega trends that drive the infrastructure space, which, as we talked about, it's the energy transition. It's also digitization that we're using right now. But the last, which we haven't touched on, is basically just the growth of the emerging markets middle class that really drives the sector forwards. So, you know, if we compare our consumption patterns to, you know, the average middle class consumer in an emerging market, there's still a lot of convergence to go. So, you know, like, for example, in Holland, one out of every two people owns a car. In China, it's one out of every seven. So, you know, they don't have to get to one out of every two, but... As middle class consumption increases, you can just imagine the infrastructure needs for, you know, power, for transmission, you know, for consumption. All of that just gets driven. And that's a multi-decade theme that we really like. So diversification and also exposure to mega trends mm -hmm. uh, shaping the future. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate also a bit more about the cons of investing in real assets? Yep. Do you want to go first? Actually? Sure. Um, yeah, I think the, the biggest risk when you invest in real estate would be leverage. Um, quite often, real estate cycles have broken because people use too much leverage. Um, and then if the credit cycle turns against you, you certainly face the opportunity of bankruptcy. So controlling your leverage is absolutely key. Um, what do we mean with that? We've calculated that the optimal amount of loan-to-value, let me explain that for a sec. So it's the amount of loans versus the value of your real estate. So the optimal amount of loan-to-value is around about 35%. If you go much higher than that, you run that f risk of bankruptcy. If you go much lower than that, you leave a lot of return on the table because leverage does, as a, does have a role to play, right? It can optimize your returns by, uh, by scaling it. So that, that balance between um, the optimal amount of leverage um, is, is crucial, and um, we monitor our investments um, quite prudently on that. And for infrastructure, you know, we'd have a similar, you know, risk on the leverage side that you do need to be aware of and look at. And that's what we do as bottom-up investors. But the, I think the biggest risk you can make is assuming all the companies are going to be similar. So, you know, I wouldn't take like a broad-based basket approach because, you know, you can get inflation protection, but how much do I get and when do I get it? It's such an important consideration. You can't be assuming all the companies have their contracts designed the same way. You've got to actually, you know, look at that. And then secondly, you know, the big opportunity was the energy transition, but not everyone's going to win. You know, the company that decarbonizes the fastest is going to be the one that wins. And the company that doesn't might actually have a lot more cost going forwards as we see carbon prices or regulation getting stricter. So you've really got to be a very bottom up. Otherwise, just assuming that, you know, all the companies are going to be moving roughly the same way at the same time, that's a big pitfall. And what are sort of other aspects that, you know, investors need to take into account when 
uh, investing in real assets. Jax, can you can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So basically, I would say it's the the geoeconomics, which is basically that infrastructure asset you can't move the location of it you know where that is like that railway line is at that railway line Schiphol airport has been at that location for a hundred years you know that's not going to change so you've really got to use your data to analyze the economics of that location because that's the one thing you're not going to be able to change I think that's you know pretty much like the main you know aspect that you really need to focus on. And within the real estate sector, yeah, I absolutely echo what Jack just said. Um, location quality and building quality are the two crucial elements. Um, let me give you another example of the apartment building that we just talked about. If you're the owner of an apartment building and if you're trying to get tenants in your apartment building, yeah, let's take an average family, what are the elements that that average family would look at? It would look at the location of that building. It would look at the local amenities uh, in the near vicinity of that building like parks, cinemas, restaurants, cultural uh, items. Uh, but it would also look at, for example, the quality of public schools in the near vicinity to bring the kids to school. All those, all those elements, all those variables, you can gather data on. It's readily available. Our team processes and analyzes that data. We often say we we analyze around about 25 million data points per annum, um, and we do so to golf the quality of those individual locations. Um, so that's really, really crucial. The other element is building quality, as we said already, um, especially with the with with turning um, real estate more into more sustainable investments, building quality becomes very, very important. So the amount of money that is needed to go, for example, from a label E to a label B or a label A even, that amount of money needs to be accurately calculated, the amount of money needs to be there, and then you make that step up in building quality. So it can be that we invest in poor buildings, but then at least we need a pathway to make that building more energy efficient and then we can see it and then we can still invest in it. But it's that pathway that is very, very crucial. And now on to a more personal uh, question. Could you both share something that you're really proud of and something that you regret when it comes to, well, recent investment decisions that you've made? Who would like to uh, to start? I, I think Jax and I and the rest of the team, we talk a lot about the carbon pathway and, and Jax can explain it like no, no other. But I, I think ultimately... It's one of the elements that we're most proud of, that we can actually make a difference uh, on the planet by actively allocating capital. And um, yeah, that also gives me a very personal, very good feeling. So um, I think that's what I'm most proud of. And, and could you give a concrete example, maybe? Um, yeah. So, you know, um, with me, I'm proud of, you know, exactly the same thing. And because I'm a father of three. So to be honest, my investment time horizon is my children's time horizon. So it gets quite long term. I think when we're engaging with companies on their decarbonization plans, you can get different groups of companies. You can get some which, you know, might be going completely the wrong way, i.e. they're actually planning to build new coal power plants. We're engaging with those companies to basically explain the rationale for not doing it and how important that is. And we succeed. You know, I really, you know, that gives you a deeper sense of satisfaction. It's more than just day-to-day investing. You know, when you're outperforming, that's really good. But it's not a story you're going to tell your kids, you know, like, you know, years later or something. But really having an impact, i.e. changing a company strategy for the better, that is the thing that I'm actually really proud of because those are the stories you'll tell later on, you know, when you're with your family. And any decisions that you regret? 
in hindsight? Lots. I mean, I've been investing for 27 years and, you know, as active as we've been, you don't win every single time. That's impossible. And so, you know, it's always, yeah, when an investment case just doesn't pan out, you know, doesn't work the way you want it to, mm. you know, it hurts like hell, but you've got to use that as a learning opportunity. Otherwise, you're just going to be, you know, wasting your own time and your own money as well. So those are the regrets, but there's too many to go through. So, Well, thank you both for uh, for sharing. I have one last question. What is your ambition with regard to your investment strategy? Well, ultimately, we work for our clients. It's as, it's as simple as that. So to surface them as good as possible, to create long-term sustainable returns for those clients in a forecastable way, that is what we're trying to do. And, and that is why we get up every day. And, and that is what gives us energy. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's our goal. Yeah, no, exactly the same. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you, Egbert and Jax, for sharing your story on real assets. Yes. Would you like to know more? Then please visit our website, www.kempa.com, for videos, blogs, articles, and more about the topic. Thank you very much. Thank you.